0: Greetings friends and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. My name is Jeremy Walker and I am your guide through the sermons of Charles Haddon Spurgeon in this podcast. And each week we read through a selection of sermons, having reached this week sermons 570 to 576. The podcast picks up the week's featured sermon, one selected as a uh, particular representation of Spurgeon's pulpit and publishing output, giving us a window into the ministry of a man who uh, exalted Jesus Christ and sought to expose and bring down everything that exalted itself against him. Our featured sermon this week is number 573. It's entitled Baptismal Regeneration. And it was preached on the 5th of June, 1864, a Sunday morning at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, from Mark 16, verses 15 and 16. And he said unto them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believes not shall be damned. Now, why have we chosen this sermon? Why are we selecting this one uh, when we could have selected a number of others? The answer is that it is described in the autobiography of Spurgeon as the most memorable service ever held in the tabernacle. The sermon in question had, by the time of the publication of the autobiography, reached its 230th thousand and was still in constant demand. That means that 230,000 copies had been printed and made available and been bought by various people. Now to put that in perspective I looked at a website that publishes sermons and the uh, top sermon on that website in its history was preached about 20 years ago and has reached about 290,000 downloads and that in an age of uh, wide distribution and immediate access. This sermon in the 19th century reached a circulation of 230,000 copies on paper. Now, Spurgeon wrote of this more than 10 years after he preached it, that it was delivered with the full expectation that the sale of the sermons would receive very serious injury. In fact, I mentioned to one of the publishers that I was about to destroy it at a single blow, but that the blow must be struck, cost what it might, for the burden of the Lord lay heavy upon me, and I must deliver my soul. I deliberately counted the cost, and reckoned upon the loss of many an ardent friend and helper, and I expected the assaults of clever and angry foes. I was not mistaken in other respects, but, in the matter of the sermons, I was altogether out of my reckoning, for they increased greatly in sale at once. That fact was not in any degree to me a test of my action being right or wrong, I should have felt as well content in heart as I am now as to the rightness of my course had the publication ceased in consequence. But, still, it was satisfactory to find that, though speaking out might lose a man some friends, it secured him many others, and if it overturned his influence in one direction, it was fully compensated elsewhere. No truth is more sure than this, that the path of duty is to be followed thoroughly if peace of mind is to be enjoyed.' Results are not to be looked at. We are to keep our conscience clear, come what may, and all considerations of influence and public estimation are to be light as feathers in the scale. In minor matters, as well as in more important concerns, I have spoken my mind fearlessly and brought down objurgations and anathemas innumerable, but I in no wise regret it and shall not swerve from the use of outspoken speech in the future any more than in the past. I would scorn to retain a single adherent by such silence as would leave him under any misapprehension. After all, men love plain speech. So then, that's something of the background to this sermon. As I've said, it was preached in early June in 1864, and it was preached under a a pressing weight of obligation and duty with regard to Spurgeon's state of mind. Now he begins the sermon by talking about faith and he describes faith as the conquering grace and notes that the apostles who are being sent out to preach the gospel, the first ministers of the word, were themselves needing a rebuke concerning their unbelief and this is because the Lord has ordained evermore that we should have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Let it never be supposed, says the preacher, that we who are God's ministers either excuse our faults or pretend to perfection. We labor to walk in holiness, but we cannot claim to be all that we wish to be. We do not base the claims of God's truth upon the spotlessness of our characters, but upon the fact that it comes from him. And here Spurgeon is beginning to uh, already establish the tone that is going to sustain this sermon. And it's a tone of particular courage uh, and particular distinctness and conviction. And we'll come more onto that as we work our way through. I should also say at this point, it is quite a long sermon. And we're, we're going to try not so much to uh, work through it phrase by phrase, but to try and take the main thrust of it. Because I think that the the issue behind it uh, of baptismal regeneration is in some ways representative of the kind of issues concerning which we need the same kind of clarity that Spurgeon brought to this matter. So, when he speaks from Mark 16, he says that the lines containing the commission of our ascended Lord are certainly of the utmost importance and demand devout attention and implicit obedience, not only from all who aspire to the work of the ministry, but also from all who hear the message of mercy. And there was constant opposition to this preaching of the gospel. And Spurgeon asks, have I ever courted your approbation? Have I ever uh, preached simply for your approval? He acknowledges it's sweet to everyone to be applauded, but if for the sake of the comforts of respectability and the smiles of men, any Christian minister shall keep back a part of his testimony, his master at the last shall require it at his hands. And this is what Spurgeon is uh, really then contending with. This is what he's up against. He wants to make sure that he clears his own conscience with regard to this great truth that he has to speak, this great concern that he has to address. And what he's trying to deal with is the doctrine of baptismal regeneration. And he confronts this dogma first and foremost with the assertion that baptism without faith saves no one. The text says, "...he that believes and is baptized shall be saved." But whether a man is baptized or not, it asserts that he that believes not shall be damned. So that baptism does not save the unbeliever, no, it does not in any degree exempt him from the common doom of all the ungodly. He may have baptism, or he may not have baptism, but if he does not believe, he shall in any case most surely be damned. Let him be baptized by immersion or sprinkling, in his infancy or in his adult age if he be not led to put his trust in Jesus Christ if he remains an unbeliever then this terrible doom is pronounced upon him he that believes not shall be damned now says Spurgeon he's the only Protestant church in England which teaches the doctrine of baptismal regeneration happens to be the corporation which not with none too much humility, calls itself the Church of England. Now, sadly, I don't think that Spurgeon could have said that uh, today, but perhaps it's worth noting that the Church of England is still the most uh, prominent uh, and certainly the best known, I think, uh, proponent Of this doctrine. It is still there in the Book of Common Prayer. And Spurgeon quotes from the Book of Common Prayer, from the Catechism, which was intended for the instruction of youth. Uh, You can look on the Church of England website still today and you can uh, find the same assertions being made that uh, baptism, the sprinkling of an infant, actually secures the salvation of that infant. So, for example, uh, with regard to the uh, uh, the The website of the Church of England, it says this We yield thee hearty thanks most merciful Father that it hath pleased thee to regenerate this infant with thy Holy Spirit to receive him for thine own child by adoption and to incorporate him into thy Holy Church. That's still the language uh, that the uh, priest in a Church of England would use at a time of baptism. Now Again, there may be people who don't use that language, who find a way around that language, but that's actually part of Spurgeon's point as he deals with this text. So, he says, this idea that the the child who is sprinkled is made alive by virtue of the sprinkling is the doctrine of a church that calls itself Protestant. Now, there's an important distinction that Spurgeon makes. I am not now dealing at all with the question of infant baptism. I have nothing to do with that this morning. I am now considering the question of baptismal regeneration, whether in adults or infants, or ascribed to sprinkling, pouring, or immersion. Now, shortly after this, he preaches another sermon on children brought to Christ, not to the font, which does speak to the issue of infant baptism. But we need to make sure that we understand that the question that is addressed here is that of baptismal regeneration. And, he says, I can hear a lot of good people say, there are many good clergymen in the church who do not believe in baptismal regeneration. To this my answer is prompt. Why then do they belong to a church which teaches that doctrine in its plainest terms? And I think here we are beginning to see the real issue for Spurgeon in preaching this sermon. Yes, he is trying to expose the folly of baptismal regeneration, but in exposing that folly, he's actually calling us to honesty and integrity in terms of our religious convictions and commitments. He says that to take an oath that I sincerely assent and consent to a doctrine which I do not believe would to my conscience appear little short of perjury, if not absolute downright perjury, but those who do so must be judged by their own lord. He speaks to his own congregation. When I accepted the officer of minister, I looked to see what were your articles of faith. If I had not believed them, I should not have accepted your call. And when I change my opinions, rest assured that as an honest man, I shall resign the office. For how could I profess one thing in your declaration of faith and quite another thing in my own preaching? Now, this is what he says in that letter that was written 10 years after this sermon was preached that what is important here is plain speaking, honesty and integrity in our convictions and commitments. To swear or say that they give their solemn assent and consent to what they do not believe is one of the grossest pieces of immorality perpetrated in England and is most pestilential in its influence since it directly teaches men to lie whenever it seems necessary to do so in order to get a living or increase their supposed usefulness. It is in fact an open testimony from priestly lips that at least in ecclesiastical matters falsehood may express truth and truth itself is a mere unimportant non-entity. Now let me make clear at this point that this kind of uh, fudging, this kind of evasion with regard to the plain meaning of words is not in any way restricted to the Church of England. It's a crying shame that there should be men within that congregation who uh, basically are saying, we don't believe what we've said we believe. But Spurgeon says, at least there are some who will say, this is what I actually hold to. I hate that doctrine, he says, but I love their honesty. And as they speak, but what they believe to be true, let them speak it out. And the more clearly, the better. Out with it, sirs, be it what it may, but do let us know what you mean. Here again is the point that if we say that we believe something, then we ought to believe it openly and honestly. Yes, there may be questions which we're still wrestling with. There may be issues that we haven't yet clarified, but we ought to be clear about what we clearly believe and we ought not to play fast and loose with the truth. Now with regard to this matter of baptismal regeneration, Spurgeon makes a number of points under this uh, first main thrust that baptism without faith saves no one. He says that uh, the idea that you're saved by baptism seems out of character with the spiritual religion which Christ came to teach. I cannot see any connection which can exist between sprinkling or immersion and regeneration, so that the one shall necessarily be tied to the other in the absence of faith. Christ came preaching what Spurgeon calls a spiritual rather than a mechanical gospel. In other words, because it is a spiritual religion, no mechanical act can secure salvation. The second argument he brings is that the dogma is not supported by facts. Are all baptized people children of God? He speaks of a so-called regenerate brother, who, having defiled the village by constant uncleanness and bestial drunkenness, died without a sign of repentance, and yet the professed minister of God solemnly accords him funereal rites, which are denied to unbaptized innocents, and puts the reprobate into the earth in sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life do we find, he's asking now himself, do we find, we who baptize on profession of faith and baptize by immersion in a way which is confessed to be correct, though not allowed by some to be absolutely necessary to its validity, do we who baptize in the name of the sacred trinity as others do, do we find that baptism regenerates? We do not. Spurgeon's point is this, whatever you actually believe about baptism, whether it is by Uh, as the word indicates immersion or whether you would say that it could also be sprinkling or pouring uh, whether or not you do it to uh, adults or to children is there any evidence that the mere act of making someone either very wet or at least slightly damp in the name of the trinity actually secures salvation no it does not Facts all show that whatever good there may be in baptism, it certainly does not make a man a member of Christ, the child of God, and an inheritor of the kingdom of heaven, or else many thieves, whoremongers, drunkards, fornicators, and murderers are members of Christ, the children of God, and inheritors of the kingdom of heaven. Then he says, I am persuaded that the performance styled baptism by the prayer book is not at all likely to regenerate, and save. I cannot understand gracious, godly people, he says, standing at the font to insult the all gracious Father with vows and promises framed upon a fiction and involving practical falsehood. How dare intelligent believers in Christ utter words which they know in their conscience to be wickedly aside from truth? When I shall be able to understand the process by which gracious men so accommodate their consciences, even then I shall have a confirmed belief that the God of truth never did and never will confirm a spiritual blessing of the highest order in connection with the utterance of such false promises and untruthful vows. And he goes on, and says, Suppose the sponsors and others to be ungodly, for we know that the godfathers and godparents have no more thought of religion than that idolatrous hollowed stone around which they gathered. His point is that if if you've got ungodly sponsors, then you're making even a mockery of what you call these solemn vows. He goes on again that baptism doesn't save the soul and that preaching that has a wrong and evil influence upon men. We meet with persons who when we tell them that they must be born again assure us that they were born again when they were baptized. The number of these persons is increasing, fearfully increasing until all grades of society are misled by this by this belief. I remember knocking on a door in a a uh, little village in England and uh, talking to somebody at that door uh, uh, an older man very respectable and I spoke to him about being born again and he was absolutely and very rapidly furious with me and he he gave me a whole list of his qualifications uh, about why he did not need this nonsense and first and foremost among them were that he had christian parents and godparents and that he had been baptized into the church of england and then he went on to to speak about his other duties and qualifications and labors and when i said to him So what will you do, sir, with the fact that in the Bible, the Lord Jesus says you must be born again. It is necessary that you be born again. And he bellowed, the Bible says no such thing, and slammed the door in my face. That's what Spurgeon is worried about. This man was not foolish. He wasn't incompetent on a merely natural level, but he believed that his baptism was saving him. Another point we must press on. In no age since the Reformation has Popery made such fearful strides in England as during the last few years. And Spurgeon connects this doctrine properly with Popery and Puseism, uh, the the growing pressure to uh, Roman Catholicism in the Church of England. He says, I say with every ground of probability, that there is no marvel that Popery should increase when you have two things to make it grow. First of all, the falsehood of those who profess a faith which they do not believe, which is quite contrary to the honesty of the Romanist, who does through evil report and good report hold his faith. And then you have, secondly, this form of error known as baptismal regeneration, commonly called Puseyism, which is not only Puseyism but Church of Englandism, because it's in the prayer book as plainly as words can express it. And this is a stepping stone to make it easy for men to go to Rome. Now again, he's not trying to just say that uh, everyone else is doing fine. He says that among dissenters you see a veneration for structures, a modified belief in the sacredness of places, which is all idolatry. For to believe in the sacredness of anything but of God and of his own word is to idolize, whether it is to believe in the sacredness of the men, the priests, the bricks and mortar, the fine linen or whatnot, which you may use in the worship of God." Spurgeon's point is that this is all of a piece with a kind of a superstition that was coming into the church and he says the velvet has got into our ministers mouths of late we must unrobe ourselves of soft raiment and truth must be spoken and nothing but truth there's that note again conviction and commitment Call a man a Baptist or a Presbyterian or a dissenter or a churchman, that's nothing to me. If he says that baptism saves the soul, out upon him, out upon him, he states what God never taught, what the Bible never laid down, and what ought never to be maintained by men who profess that the Bible and the whole Bible is the religion of Protestants. Essentially, says Spurgeon, you are being dishonest. Now... He says, I've spoken thus much, and there'll be some who accuse me of speaking thus much bitterly. Well, he says, medicine, physic, is often bitter, but it shall work well, and the physician is not bitter because his medicine is so, or if he be accounted so, it will not matter so long as the patient is cured. At all events, it is no business of the patient whether the physician is bitter or not, His business is with his soul's help. Spurgeon is concerned that people get purged of this idea that baptism can give you a new heart and a right spirit. No, you must turn from your sins and follow after Christ. And that's where he comes on to the second point, that faith is the indispensable requisite to salvation. This faith is the gift of God. It's the work of the Spirit. Some men do not believe on Jesus. They do not believe because they are not of Christ's sheep, as he himself said unto them. But his sheep hear his voice. He knows them and they follow him. He gives to them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall any pluck them out of his hand. Two things then make up this true believing, says Spurgeon, accrediting the testimony of God and confiding in it. So receiving the truth of Christ and then acting upon that belief and this is what changes the heart. This is what uh, makes a man hate his sin. This is faith receiving of the truth of Christ, knowing it to be true and then acting upon that belief and this is the faith that makes the man hate sin from that point on. His heart has been changed by the Holy Spirit, and now he hates what he once loved and loves what he once hated. It is spiritual in its nature and effects. It operates upon the entire man. And, says Spurgeon, we have seen men saved by this faith, this faith in Jesus Christ. We've seen uh, the worst sinners Lifted up and brought to God and says Spurgeon if you would be saved you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ let me urge you with all my heart to look nowhere but to Christ crucified for your salvation oh if you rest upon any ceremony though it be not baptism if you rest upon any other than Jesus Christ you must perish as sure as this book is true and so away from all the tag rags and wax candles and millinery of Puseyism away from all the gorgeous pomp of popery, away from the fonts of church and englandism we bid you turn your eyes to that naked cross where hangs as a bleeding man the son of god the foundation is jesus christ he is the rock of refuge and it is this vital essential faith which brings salvation it is christ and him crucified who is the alone object of the faith that saves Baptized, rebaptized, circumcised, confirmed, fed upon sacraments, buried in consecrated ground, everyone perishes who does not believe in Christ Jesus. And the baptism then that is in the text is one that is evidently connected with faith. Now, Spurgeon is by no means saying that baptism in itself is worthless. In fact, it becomes clear that he has a very high view of baptism. He says the baptism of the text follows directly after belief and is intimately connected with it. A man who knows that he is saved by believing in Christ does not, when he is baptized, lift his baptism into a saving ordinance. No, he will rather protest against such an error. It is Christ who saves him by faith. And the baptism which he undertakes then is the avowal of faith. It is the, uh, the testimony of his faith. It is faith taking her proper place and it is a refreshment to his faith. And these are some of the things then that Spurgeon insists upon. In baptism, a man puts on his regimentals, his, his uniform. The man believed in Christ, but his faith remained between God and his own soul. In baptism he says to the baptizer, "I believe in Jesus Christ"; says to the church, "I unite with you as a believer in the common truths of Christianity"; to the onlooker, "Whatever you may do, as for me, I will serve the Lord." He testifies what he believes that the Son of God has suffered and died and I am suffering and dying in him and I am rising with him again to newness of life. It is an obedient act, it is a, a demonstration of one's attachment to Jesus Christ and it stirs the soul, it blesses the heart, it refreshes our faith There's no mysterious efficacy in the baptistry or in the water. There's no reverence to be attached to the one or the other. But it brings home to our faith most manifestly our being buried with Christ and our rising again in newness of life with him. God is holy. His truth is holy. Holiness belongs not to the carnal and the material but to the spiritual. Oh, says Spurgeon, that a trumpet tongue would cry out against the superstition of the age. This, then, is his great concern. This is what he is striving against. Because out of any system which teaches salvation by baptism must spring infidelity, an infidelity which the false church already seems willing to nourish and foster beneath her wing. Now we've taken quite a bit of time surveying this sermon and Spurgeon is pointing the finger at this particular folly of baptismal regeneration. And running then underneath that particular concern is this this cry of the heart that we must be honest, we must show integrity with regard to our convictions and commitments. And I I think that Though, though you might argue that the, the battle with regard to baptismal regeneration has been uh, lost in certain quarters. And there are other things that are at least as damaging or almost as damaging that have also crept in and become publicly accepted and religiously celebrated. But the trouble is, that we are living now in a generation where about the only thing we sometimes seem to be convinced of is that there aren't too many things about which we ought to be convinced. In, in, in seminaries and Bible colleges, conviction is dismantled and undermined. Everybody wants to make sure that we can see what everybody else believes and, and to be sure that we can't be too sure about things. It is a relatively rare thing today to find a man who speaks plainly and who calls a spade a spade and who actually believes what he says he believes in practice. Now, there's a lot of bitterness, that's true enough. There's a lot of antagonism. There's, there's not a great deal of kindness in some of, of those who do stand up for what is true. And that itself can be a real challenge But surely we need to actually believe what we say we believe. If we believe that salvation is by faith alone, if we believe that the church is made up of regenerate individuals, if we believe that a church is a gathered church, or if we don't, let us at least be true with regard to those things and let us not pretend that they do not matter. There are too many areas today when people are basically saying we can yoke ourselves together with people who are saying the opposite of what we are saying and we can cooperate with them in those very matters. Now, there are real differences of opinion between true brothers and we're not trying to, to drive wedges where there need to be no wedges driven but let us at least acknowledge that we disagree. The, I, I remember a, a, a sermon preached by a Presbyterian brother to uh, a, a group of Baptists, as it happens, and one of the points that he made, and it's always stuck with me, is that what united him with the Baptists who were present was the fact that they actually believed that the things about which they disagreed mattered. They were not men who were saying that so much is not important. Rather, they believed that it was important and that gave them common ground. And it actually meant that they could address these things and and wrestle with it about things like uh, baptism, about things like covenant theology, about things like ecclesiology. These matters actually matter. And Spurgeon would have us be men of conviction and commitment. Why? Because God has spoken. This isn't about us following Spurgeon then. This is about us following Jesus Christ. If Christ has spoken concerning anything, then it does us well to work out what he has said and to follow it, humbly, lovingly, carefully, but with honesty and integrity. And where someone is pulling away from us at a point that is important, let us not pretend that these things do not matter. Now, I hope that you'll get a sense of the spirit then in which Spurgeon was preaching and the spirit in which I've tried to uh, communicate something of this uh, most notable sermon. It would, in some senses, be good for us to consider more of these things, but the time has come for us to finish uh, today's podcast. I hope it will help you, though, to think carefully through these matters and to ask what do I actually believe? And will I speak it out with honesty, with integrity? Will my convictions be scriptural? Will my commitments follow in their course so that people know who? and whose I am, what I believe, and what is really important. And if you'd like to follow us along as we continue reading Spurgeon, you can do so on Twitter, at Reading Spurgeon, or you can sign up at mediagratii.org slash podcasts. God willing, next week our featured sermon will be 583 slash 4. That's 583 slash 4. It's uh, one of those... Uh, more or less double sermons that crops up from time to time and the title on this occasion is the lamb the light the lamb the light and i hope you'll join us then thank you my name is jeremy walker and this is a media gratia production i hope you've enjoyed from the heart of spurgeon for more information and to read along with us week by week follow us on twitter at reading spurgeon That's Twitter at Reading Spurgeon.